Hi, I'm John Foster, and this is Left to Burn, a podcast brought to you by thepaddleground.eu. Recently, I had occasion to reread Reappraisals, a collection of essays and reviews written by the historian Tony Judd between 1994 and 2006. The introduction to the book, The World We Have Lost, was composed by Judd at the time of the book's publication and is a striking statement of the world at the time as seen from the perspective of the moderate left. Judd wrote, In decades to come, we shall, I think, look back upon the half-generation separating the fall of communism in 1989-91 from the catastrophic American occupation of Iraq as the years the locust ate, a decade and a half of wasted opportunity and political incompetence on both sides of the Atlantic. With too much confidence and too little reflection, we put the 20th century behind us and strode boldly into its successor, swaddled in self-serving half-truths. The triumph of the West, the end of history, the unipolar American moment, the ineluctable march of globalization of the free market. In the pages that followed, Judd offered a diagnosis of the time and a prognosis for where he thought things were headed. He wrote at a crucial moment. The world stood on the cusp of the most catastrophic financial crisis in modern history. Certainly Judd could not have been aware of this at the time, especially given the fact that the experts tasked with overseeing global finance signally failed to recognize the danger. But Judd's essay operates at a different level, with different concerns. The world we have lost is a historian's lament at the failure of people in Europe and North America to understand their own history. Judd quite correctly rejected the idea that history should be understood didactically, that it can be the basis for simple and easily digested lessons. For Judd, history had been, in former times, a shared store of knowledge, a common text, and a basis for understanding contemporary events and problems. If that shared understanding was imperfect, as it certainly was, it at least provided a starting point for a common and productive conception of the world. Tony Judd was one of the best-known historians in the world at the time of his tragic and untimely death in August 2010 from amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. He was born in London in 1948, the child of Jewish emigres from continental Europe. He grew up in the milieu of the Jewish working class, influenced both by the politics of Marxist left and by the leftist variant of Zionism. He received a scholarship to study at King's College, Cambridge, where he earned a BA in 1969. He then spent a year studying at the prestigious École Normale Supérieure in Paris, before completing a doctorate in history in 1972. During his university years, he spent summers working on a kibbutz in the state of Israel and served as an auxiliary in the IDF during the Six-Day War in 1967. In the wake of these experiences, he moved away from both Marxism and Zionism and toward a position of moderate progressivism. He would later describe himself as a, quote, universalist social democrat. Judd's academic work focused on the history of the French left. His dissertation, La Reconstruction du Parti Socialiste, was published in French in 1976. This was followed three years later by Socialism in Provence, 1871-1914, a study in the origins of the French left. It reads as somewhat pedestrian today, but it is a model of thorough archival scholarship and clarity, and it formed the basis for a broadening of Judd's engagement with the history of the left in France. Judd's mature project began with the publication of Past Imperfect, French Intellectuals, 1944-1956. This was Judd at his most directly politically engaged. Past Imperfect is a blistering critique of French intellectuals' unwillingness to break with Stalinism in the post-war years, at a time when the horrific crimes of the regime were well-known and easily discoverable for anybody inclined to find them out. This would establish one of the most important and enduring themes of Judd's work, the critique of communism and of its intellectual enablers. The importance of this topic can be seen in the pantheon of heroes and demons of Judd's essayistic output. 
Judd devoted long appreciations to the work of reformed communists such as Arthur Kessler and Manus Sperber. The liberal and intensely anti-communist sociologist Raymond Aron is another of Judd's favorites, as is the Polish dissident and later liberal Catholic Leszek Kołakowski. His most withering assessments are reserved for intellectuals who ought to have known better, such as Sartre and Beauvoir, or who used Marxism as a form of conjuration, as in the case of Louis Althusser. Judd was a prolific reviewer and essayist, publishing predominantly in the New York Review of Books and in the New Republic. He might have remained a prominent figure in the somewhat obscure world of the Academy, but for two events in the last decade of his life. The first was the publication of an essay on the State of Israel published in the New York Review of Books in 2003. Judd was critical of the aggressive nationalism and chauvinism that, in his view, characterized Israeli Zionism. Israel was becoming, Judd argued, a, quote, belligerently intolerant, faith-driven ethnostate, unquote. He also published a complimentary review of John Mearsheimer and Stephen Walt's essay, The Israel Lobby and U.S. Foreign Policy, in the New York Times in 2006. Although the paper and the book that followed it were the subject of intense controversy and often hysterical responses by defenders of the state of Israel, Judd noted it did not, as many of its critics claimed, accuse Israel of some sort of conspiratorial action. What it did do was point out that Israel and its boosters in the United States did work to try and turn U.S. foreign policy to Israel's advantage. This was simply what any state in Israel's position would do. Whether the policies that this influence created were advantageous or disadvantageous to the United States was another question. In Judd's view, quote, it will not be self-evident to future generations of Americans why the imperial might and international reputation of the United States are so closely aligned with one small, controversial Mediterranean client state, unquote. In any case, the project of trying to achieve influence on the policies of a major global actor did not have to involve anything sinister. It was merely the price of doing business in the world of geopolitics as it actually existed. Judd's writings created a firestorm of controversy. He was accused in letters to the New York Review of Books of being a, quote, self-hating Jew and an anti-Semite, unquote. In one notorious event, an appearance by Judd at an event to be held at the Polish consulate in October 2006 was canceled after pressure was applied by the ADL and the American Jewish Committee, as reported by the Washington Post. The controversy also resulted in Judd's being removed from the editorial board of the New Republic. At the same time, Judd's public profile was lifted by the publication of his magisterial post-war, A History of Europe, since 1945. Published in 2005 and running to more than 800 pages, Post-War presented an extensively detailed account of the years following the Second World War. Written in Judd's clear and literate style, it was well-grounded in fact, but also reflected the author's scholarly concerns. His criticism of the policies of the Soviet Union and its proxies was unstinting, as was his dismissal of its enablers and apologists further west. He also had little time for the student movements of the 1960s and for the new social movements that followed upon them. This was of a piece with Judd's social and scholarly outlook. The world we have lost is a lament for the loss of a sort of collective historical memory that people shared through the end of the Cold War, but have since either forgotten or never learned. In its place, we have a culture of commemoration, selectively focusing on moments of triumph, usually national, and of victimization. What has been lost is the fund of common reference points that, at one point, according to Judd, formed the basis for a coherent conversation, if never for general agreement. History has become didactic. Quote, the occasion for the teaching of a certain sort of political lesson about things that were done and should never be forgotten, about mistakes that were made and should not be made again, unquote. Judd wrote powerfully of the danger that could arise from reducing history to a sort of instrumental prop for the inculcation of lessons. 
quote, the 20th century is thus on the path to becoming a moral memory palace, a pedagogically serviceable chamber of historical horrors, whose way stations are labeled Munich or Pearl Harbor, Auschwitz or Gulag, Armenia or Bosnia, Rwanda, with 9-11 as a sort of subrogatory coda, a bloody postscript for those who would forget the lessons of the century or who never properly learned them. The problem with this lapidary representation of the last century as a uniquely horrible time from which we have now thankfully emerged is not the description. The 20th century was in many ways a truly awful era, an age of brutality and mass suffering perhaps unequaled in the historical record. The problem is the message, that all of that is now behind us, that its meaning is clear, and that we may now advance, unencumbered by past errors, into a different and better era. Certainly, we can only see history from the historical moment in which we find ourselves. But the contemporary approach to history tends to flatten it out until it becomes simply a series of more or less digestible chunks suitable for cultural or political pedagogy. But Judd had a further point to make. In taking this approach to history, quote, we encourage citizens and students to see the past and its lessons through the particular vector of their own suffering, or that of their ancestors. Today, the common interpretation of the recent past is thus composed of the manifold fragments of separate pasts, each of them Jewish, Polish, Serb, Armenian, German, Asian American, Palestinian, Irish, homosexual, marked by its own distinctive and assertive victimhood, unquote. There's a somewhat curmudgeonly tone here, one with which people acquainted with Judd's writings will be familiar. Judd was a thorough and perceptive reader of texts, but he could be dismissive, sometimes quite savagely, toward movements, ideas, and people with which he did not agree. One recalls here his essay, A Clown in Regal Purple, published in the History Workshop Journal in March 1979. This article was a long-form sneer at the then-popular varieties of hyphenated history, social, cultural, feminist, etc., it was Judd's most sustained piece of scholarly grumpiness, frequently pairing legitimate criticism of modish approaches to historiographical practice with an occasionally jarring lack of collegial sympathy. There is a quote often wrongly attributed to Henry Kissinger that runs, The politics of the university are so intense because the stakes are so low. For Judd, the stakes were never low, as his position in The World We Have Lost makes clear. There is a substantial issue underlying Judd's somewhat choleric comment about victimization. One of the changes to which one could legitimately point in the modern ecology of information is an increased awareness that some people have been victimized. The rise of the so-called new social movements from black consciousness to feminism to gay rights and the history of indigenous peoples subjected to colonial violence has resulted in a variety of voices being heard that were in former times silenced by the dominant political and historical culture. These have at points been narratives of victimization, unavoidably so, since the people in question had, in fact, been victimized. Reading Judd's essays, one gets the impression that, to the extent that he is concerned with victimization, it is that resulting from communism. Stalin and Mao certainly racked up staggering body counts, and their successors were also guilty of numerous crimes and misdeeds, if of a somewhat less lethal nature. Perhaps it is because the set of those victimized by communism is more, in a sense, universal and not reducible to some subset of society making important claims for rights or recognition. Having said that, it is also worth noting that one defining feature of the contemporary political scene is the propensity of people at the top of the pyramid of race, class, and gender, i.e. whites in general and men in particular, to assert spurious claims of victimhood. There is an extent to which this is merely a more or less cynical attempt to seize the symbolic power that narratives of victimization carry in order to reconfirm their own social and political power. Stripped of their somewhat crotchety outer layer, 
Judd's worries about the lack of a common historical memory have a valid core, or at least one can be gleaned from them. Suppose the question was not, how can we get back to a cultural position where we all had access to a common store of historical memory? It's debatable whether that ever existed, in quite the way Judd claims that it did, and in any case, what historical consciousness did exist was leavened with a full measure of error and elision. But perhaps the question might be asked differently. For instance, how can we create solidarity in a political and cultural world of multiple voices and experiences? This is a question that has bedeviled the left for decades and has only become more pronounced as industrial workers have receded as a category of identity in the North Atlantic world. The world we have lost may, in fact, be one we never had, except in aspiration. Recovering that aspiration will be crucial for the left if it wishes to build a world that is not only critical, but also inclusive. Now I'm going to bring in my podcasting partner, Josh White, for a discussion of this and other matters. Before we start, I think we need to check the scoreboard. And as far as I can tell, the score currently is Liz Trust nil, Lettuce won. Yes, definitely. The Lettuce is victorious and Truss will be forgotten. <laughs> yeah, so this is the shortest tenure as British Prime Minister in the history of the, the August history of the office. Yep. Before this, the shortest run of any prime minister was George Canning, who died in office after a little over 100 days. So this is 45 to 50 days, depending on when she actually leaves. That's a hell of a record. It seems like the available Tory candidates currently are essentially serving up leftovers from a meal that nobody liked the first time. Is this requirement for support from 100 members a new thing? I don't know that I've ever seen this. I mean, I don't follow the leadership elections for British political parties all that closely, but is this a new development? It's from the 1922 committee, which is named, funnily enough, after a coup in the 20s. And, well, I say coup, basically ousting a Tory leader. That's their role in Tory politics. And they've come up with this 100 MP threshold to basically try to engineer a coronation and to prevent people like Boris from getting through and to hopefully, from their point of view, prevent the members from having a vote because they're worried about another list trust. You sent me a link actually the other day of the evening presenter on ITV describing British politics as total chaos, and it really is. This is one of those rare moments when British politics has exceeded the chaos threshold of American politics. But that's just because we're coming up to an election and haven't had one. This is a sort of moment at which the American democratic system could easily be spiraling the bull since there are a lot of people up for election who are unapologetic election deniers. And this seems to be the Republican strategy in the United States is to get people into positions of power who will be willing to decertify or refuse to certify elections when people win who they don't like. But that's a little bit in the future. So for now, we are number one in the chaos awards of politics. Right. It's funny, given the long history of the 20th century, how the sort of political chaos I mean, it used to be, if you look at the history of the 20th century, France, Germany would be the places that you would see real chaos. I mean, Germany starting around the end of the First World War and going up through the end of the Second World War or into the 60s, depending on how you look at it in France all the time, Italy. But it really, I mean, and okay, Italy is now in a, not in a very good situation because of the whole Georgia Maloney, pseudo-reformed black shirt. In the previous thing that we did, I, I was calling her brown or tan. Obviously, I know the difference. Germans are brown shirts, Italians are black shirts of the fascist variety. But yeah. 
they refer to her as post-fascist in the media, which I think is a little bit optimistic, but, you know, I'm, I'm also dubious about the application of the term fascist to modern political movements. I think post-fascist is probably closer to the case in point, but it really seems like the real chaos has moved to the English-speaking world, unfortunately, and it's likely to stay there. Yeah, there's very little chance of the next Tory leader stabilizing the situation. I think that's a very safe bet. Yeah, Adam Tooze actually made a really interesting point in the Ones and Twos podcast, which I really recommend to people. I mean, I recommend that you listen to us, but also I recommend <laughs> that you listen to that. Adam Tooze is a very well-informed guy. Ones and Twos is done, I think, under the auspices of Foreign Policy magazine. One of the things he was talking about was why it is that there was so much chaos caused in the financial markets by Liz Truss instituting a policy that would have resulted in giving large amounts of money to the people at the very top of the income distribution. And his point was that it doesn't make any sense unless you look at the way that some other large financial actors, particularly pension funds, had been betting on inflation. That was a big issue because they had been betting one way on inflation and the mini budget was likely to make inflation move in the other direction. That was the reason that they were so up in arms. I think that's a fair statement of Tuz's position, although, once again, you should definitely listen to the to the podcast yourselves and, and, and judge whether what I'm saying is the correct interpretation. Yeah, it's definitely the case that the financial sector was very unhappy with the budget because of the kind of uncertainty it created um, short term, and probably because they had, they had their interests going one way, as opposed to what Trust was trying to do. And also, it's the fact that they didn't really need the tax cuts, of course. But that's a whole different debate. Certainly, they're, they're already doing quite well. Well, I was rereading the other day the Tony Judd book, Reappraisals. It's a collection of essays he wrote between about 1996 and 2005. He wrote a really interesting introduction to the book. He wrote it in 2008, sort of right before the financial crisis really got going. And it's very redolent of Tony Judd's concerns as a historian. If you read his work, he's a very, he described himself one time as sort of a universalist social democrat. But on the basis of his historical work, he was very pronouncedly anti-communist, which is, I think, right. Communism was a terrible system. It took people on the left or some people an absurdly long time to work that out and to accept the political implications of that. But anyway, Judd, I think, in the sort of later period in his career, did a very good job of summing up a certain kind of progressive liberalism. And he wrote in the course of this the following... The expansion of communication, together with the fragmentation of information, offers a striking contrast with communities of even the quite recent past. Until the last decades of the 20th century, most people in the world had limited access to information. But within any one state or nation or community, they were all likely to know many of the same things, thanks to national education, state-controlled radio and television, and a common print culture. Today, the opposite applies. Most people in the world outside of sub-Saharan Africa have access to a near infinity of data, but in the absence of any common culture beyond a small elite, and not always even there, the particular information and ideas that people select or encounter are determined by a multiplicity of tastes, affinities, and interests. As the years pass, each one of us has less in common with the fast multiplying worlds of our contemporaries, not to speak of the world of our forebears. All of this is surely true, and it has disturbing implications for the future of democratic governance. Nevertheless, disruptive change, even global transformation, is not in itself unprecedented. The economic globalization of the late 19th century was no less disruptive, except that its implications were initially felt and understood by far fewer people. What is significant about the present age of transformations is the unique insouciance 
with which we have abandoned not just the practices of the past, this is normal enough and not so very alarming, but their very memory, a world just recently lost, is already half forgotten. And I think that's an interesting statement of the concerns of moderate liberals or social democratic universalists or whatever it was that, that Tony Judd actually was, in the sense that if you grew up in the 1980s especially, one of the concerns of government, it seemed like, was preventing certain kinds of information from getting out or limiting certain kinds of information. And maybe this was our jaundiced way as, as younger people of looking at the government trying to create a sort of common culture or whatever. Nowadays, it seems like the problem is just the opposite. It's just there's a lot of information and the way it's accessed by people is in these kind of information silos. So people on sort of rightward, I mean, this is particularly true if you look at the scholarly sociological research on this, people on this kind of rightward edge of the political spectrum only get certain kinds of information. And we're basically awash in a sea of information, which is, according to Judd, preventing us from developing common ideas. So my question to you is, do you think that the problem is just too much information and a lack of common culture, or do you think that there's some other dynamic going on here? Well, my instinct is to resist the narrative that is in the last several years about fake news and post-truth politics. I like to say that we're pre-truth. Maybe it is the case that we are awash with too much information. But it's also clear that in like the social media age, people get locked into circuits or what right now is kind of echo chambers, bubbles, as it were. And it's not that they're just hearing things that they agree with, it's that they're being fed things by algorithms, right? And in many cases, there's like a kind of cycle of outrage going on. And this kind of all this stuff about woke culture it used to be political correctness. You know, you find your right wing relatives are watching all these videos demonizing Antifa, that kind of thing. Or they'll be fed certain images when there are protests like BLM, and suddenly they'll be shown images of people. I don't know, defacing statues, that kind of thing, to wind them up. Not to make it sound like a conspiracy, of course, but it's this algorithmic age. Maybe it is the case that we're fed too much information, but or awash in too much information, but it does seem like there's another dynamic as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a legit point, frankly, just that, I mean, the point that Judd wants to make about history, and as a person who's trained as a historian, too, I mean, I'm not on the level of Tony Judd, certainly, but on the one hand, getting trained as a historian, you're always cautioned against being too presentist. I mean, we can only see history with the eyes that we have now, right? But by the same token, we want to try and look at history to the degree that it's possible to look at it on its own terms and to not draw simplistic lessons from it. I mean, one of the things that one encounters a lot as a historian of Germany or getting trained as a historian of Germany is, I mean, you have to do a sort of deep dive through the literature on the Holocaust. And so often people look at the Holocaust and want to say, well, like, what are the lessons from the Holocaust? That's a really unfortunate way of looking at it. I mean, if the lesson is, well, we shouldn't hate each other, A, we should have figured that out a long time ago. We don't need the Holocaust to show us that. And B, looking at the Holocaust as some sort of didactic moment from which we can take easily digested lessons really is, doesn't do justice to the victims of this horrible crime, doesn't do justice to their suffering. It turns them into kind of like a a prop for learning something, which, once again, we ought to have learned long ago. And if we hadn't, this isn't going to teach it to us. I mean, I think one of the conclusions that you can... Unfortunately. Well, right. Yeah, exactly. I saw, I think this was in a review of Paul Steinberg's book. Paul Steinberg was an inmate in Auschwitz and was written about by Primo Levi under another name. But the review in The Guardian about Paul Steinberg's book, Speak You Also, when it came out, one of the points that the guy made was, 
if the purpose of learning about the Holocaust is never again, well, we've really failed because things like that have certainly happened again. But to get back to the question of information, I spent time in the UK in the 1980s. I grew up in the United States in the 1980s. And in both cases, there was a commonly understood, commonly accepted narrative of American history. A lot of it was wrong. In the UK, similarly, I went to high school. I went to sixth form in the UK, took history. The questions of colonialism were just never mentioned. India might as well never have existed as far as my history teachers were concerned. So now that's kind of broken down in a certain sense. Part of this change in the information architecture or the change in the availability of information is that more voices get heard, right? And this is the sort of gripe of liberals. Tony Judd, I, I have a lot of respect for the guy, but one of his sort of underlying themes and one of the underlying themes of this piece is the idea that, okay, so there's this narrative of victimhood, right? And part of this comes out of his historical understanding of, of Israel, for which he was very harshly criticized, but which I think has a lot of substance. But liberals on the model of Tony Judd and of my parents or whatever, a lot of times look at these new social movements, feminism and black consciousness, that want to revise our historical understandings when we could all agree on what history really was, and now it's become so diffuse. Yeah, and this is why, why the neocons emerged, right? Because they were basically Cold War liberals who felt threatened, and so they pivoted rightwards, ever rightwards, throughout the 70s and came to a position that basically said, we need noble myths about the past because they're simple, and we have to assert these things. Essentially, we need to lie to the public about America's role in the world in order to defend the kind of social system that we think is just. There's a point here, which I think is not obviously wrong, which is that it's difficult to form solidarities among different groups of people. I mean, this is a big problem with the labor left. And I know you're well aware of this. You know, what happened to the U.S. labor movement in the 1960s was they were very resistant to the black civil rights movement. As things went on, they got more open to it. But by that time, by that point, the black civil rights movement had decided, well, the labor movement is part of the problem. And so there was a split and activists in the traditional labor movement, you hear them saying in more or less veiled terms, well, if these people would just move off the whole racial consciousness thing, then we could really accomplish our goals of getting more industrial justice or whatever. And this is a sort of feature of the left going forward. I mean, if you listen to people in the traditional areas of the left, all too often, what they want to say is, well, if it hadn't been for the new social movements, the economic situation is the fundamental thing. If, if people hadn't gotten focused on these less central issues like questions of race, questions of gender, then we could really address the problems of capitalism. At the extreme, you hear people kind of suggest, and this is a little bit of a straw man, but you can see this in some of the discourse, that the idea is that once we get rid of capitalism, that all these other problems will go away, which is obviously, obviously untrue. I mean, once again, that is a little bit of a straw man, but people on the left, unfortunately, sometimes move in this direction because they're frustrated at the difficulties in creating solidarity that come out of more voices. But the fact of the matter is we need to understand different kinds of oppression. It's not all just economic oppression. And this is the real challenge for the left going forward into the 21st century. Fortunately, some sections of the left do have a grasp of this and are taking quite interesting positions on it. I mean, there's another example in the UK of this in a different way, which would be the Scottish National Party and how it has a kind of progressive mythology about Scottish history. Again, it's it's useful for its own political ends to assert this kind of mythology that says that Scotland is just like Ireland, effectively, which isn't true. For the sake of 
push towards independence and for the sake of pushing back against English nationalism and Tory policies. And as a leftist, I could certainly see the advantage of that. But the mythology isn't true. Just to be clear, I don't want to tar the entire left with this brush of failure to understand the significance of new social movements, of questions of race, of questions of gender. There are plenty of people on the left who do who do understand and who, who get it. But it does raise an interesting question. What's the basis for a sort of broad-based solidarity? I mean, one of the things that you can sort of say about the right, disgraceful as their politics are, is that they are pretty good about realizing who's on their side of the fence and who's not. I mean, this is why they're successful. They've created solidarity across sections of the right. Partly it's about economic interest, but partly it's not. There's a lot of people voting for the political right in the United States and in the UK and in Germany and in France who are voting against their own immediate short-term, short-to-medium-term economic interests because they've gotten obsessed with questions of immigration, questions of the greatness of the country or that sort of thing. What they have managed to do is create a basis for solidarity so that if you look at people voting for Trump, there's a lot of people on the right who are like, well, Trump is a terrible person, especially people on the evangelical right. They're like, well, Trump, you know, you point out the guy's multiply divorced and talks about assaulting women and all kinds of things. And they're like, well, he is a bad person, but but he's getting done things that we want to get done. And not that we should be approaching things that way on the left. I mean, the, the left has to, I think, function on a higher ethical plane than that. But yeah. the, the question we do, we are faced with is, like, what's the basis for solidarity and solidarity action that we have going forward, given that this older idea that, you know, we would all be class conscious or what have you has gone by the wayside? Because now there are other voices who do get the opportunity to talk about their own experience and bring their own political, social, cultural views into the discussion of politics. Yeah, absolutely. The right has always been better at identity politics, I think, unfortunately, you know, in forms of nationalism or in terms of manipulating different coalitions around religion, to some extent over gender and to some extent over gender in recent years. You know, you've seen these strange kind of alliances between uh, right-wing conservatives and so-called gender-critical feminists, for example. You'd see kind of left liberals co-opted by certain sections of the right that are particularly Islamophobic, for example. Um, right. So the right is very good at playing these games. Yeah, it's interesting, too, that they... Well, I mean, there's a couple of interesting things that you brought. One is that one of the sort of positions of the right as the whole conflict in the, with the Middle East got going. I mean, I remember, and I, I don't know if I mentioned this last time, but when the invasion of Afghanistan was in planning after September 11th, one of the things that happened with the Bush administration was that Laura Bush, the president's wife, was sort of presented as a person who was going to be a kind of advocate for women in the Middle East, whose benighted condition we should now care about, that disappeared very quickly. But there is this sort of element, and you hear some sections of the feminist right, if you want to call it, echoing those kinds of concerns. And unfortunately, too, I mean, this gets into a kind of broader issue with the way feminism has shaken out over the course of the last 20 or 30 years, where now there's the whole debate about trans erasing radical feminists and whether trans women are women. It's really not served feminism very well because some people who really ought to have known better have failed to correctly assess the question of how do we defend the dignity of other people, in this case, trans people. Yeah, absolutely. And again, 
to come full circle, it does connect very well with the issue of whether or not this is about information, quote unquote, the wrong information, or is the information system too democratic, which I have a feeling is kind of what he was getting at, really. You have alternative media on a quite a large scale compared to 20, 30 years ago. And as a result of that, the mainstream media has a kind of crisis of legitimacy up to a point. You know, that's what the fake news scare, in my mind, that's what it was about to a large degree. Yeah. I was just giving talks recently to people about the history of podcasting. And one of the things that's really fascinating about podcasting is that it is the sort of leading edge of the Internet's democratization of information provision. But the question you always have to ask, and the one that unfortunately few people ask, especially on the right, but not only there, is when you're listening to a source of information, who is this person and why should I care about what they have to say? And it can't just be a, a matter of, well, I really feel like I agree with them. I feel like they're speaking truth. You have to be a critical consumer of information. But what this does do is it means that it's, it's far more difficult to have a common basis, a common store of facts. It turned out that that common store of facts was loaded with falsehoods or whatever, or like elisions and forgettings and what have you. But I can see why liberals look back at that and were like, oh my gosh, at a certain point in the 80s or the 50s or whenever that was, we could talk about things meaningfully. We could have some meaningful political arguments, whereas now we're stuck sort of like, you say potato and I say potato. Let's get rid of liberal democracy, which is what's likely to happen in the United States, unfortunately, in the short term. You know, maybe your guys' liberal democracy will live a little bit longer. I, I, I hope so anyway. Well, we'll see. I mean, I, I wouldn't like to bet on this. <laughs> right. Yeah. The this, this smart money wouldn't be for. Well, I hope we're wrong about this. I mean, I hope that liberal democracy is pretty rotten in terms of its willingness to grind up human beings in order to create a, its own version of a just social order. but. But it's better than some of the alternatives on offer. And I mean, I think if you look at the way things are going in Italy and possibly also in with the next French election, we'll just have to see. But that's all we got time for for this time. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll be back in two weeks with more chat. Yep. Thank you. This was Left to Burn. Good luck and goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>